0: Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Loeb. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Loeb is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, you can grab a Bible and turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, and in case you use one of our Pew Bibles, you can find that on page 874. While you're finding your place, have have you ever lost something uh, that was important to you? Maybe something that's not necessarily valuable in terms of money, Uh, but something that's very valuable uh, simply because of what it is or or perhaps how you got it, who gave it to you. Uh, In my experience, there are few things more frustrating in life than trying to find something that you really want to find and not being able to do it. We typically are willing to invest a lot of time and energy in looking for it. Well, God is like that too. And this morning, Jesus is going to teach us about God's desire to seek and save the lost. And so we're in Luke chapter 15, and we're going to pick up beginning in verse 1. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, Than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so last week, Jesus challenged the crowd uh, with the the truth that following him in discipleship requires obedience in every area of our lives, regardless of what it may cost. And now as we move into chapter 15, Luke tells us that all of the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear Jesus teach. Just as a refresher, you may remember from chapter 5 that tax collectors were Jews who worked for the oppressive Roman Empire. They were seen as part of the problem and as traitors to the Jewish people. But not only were they considered traitors, but they often took advantage of their position to make money off of their own people on top of that, which just poured salt into the wound. So consequently, tax collectors were ostracized by the Jewish community. They were not allowed to give testimony in court. They were excommunicated from participating in worship, At the synagogue. And then when Luke refers to sinners, he's talking about people whose lives were were not characterized by obedience to the Old Testament laws in, in whatever variety of ways, who were considered to be outcasts because of it. Now, when Luke says that all of these people were coming to hear Jesus, that may be a bit of an exaggeration, but the point is that Jesus is experiencing an overwhelming response. From people who are on the outskirts of Jewish religious life. And uh, this does not go unnoticed by the Pharisees and the scribes, who grumble among themselves about how Jesus chooses to associate with these people. And I think it's interesting that the Pharisees don't seem to leave any room for redemption. Right, like you, you may have heard the phrase before once saved, always saved. Well, it seems. On the other hand, like the Pharisees believe in something more like once lost, always lost. Right? In, in their opinion, these people are sinners. That is who they are. And so for Jesus to even be around them is scandalous. And the implication of this grumbling is that Jesus himself must be spiritually compromised on some level to be willing to hang out with them. And then starting in verse 3, as he typically does, Jesus responds to the Pharisees with a parable that illustrates the proper perspective to have. Actually, in this case, he's going to give three parables. In the first parable, Jesus refers to a shepherd with a flock of 100 sheep. And he points out that if one of the sheep happens to wander off, then the shepherd will leave the other 99 sheep in a safe place, and he will go out to search for the lost sheep. Now, we might think that one lost sheep out of 100 really isn't that big of a deal. That's 1%. It's not all that important. Uh, But for a shepherd, each sheep is valuable. Taking care of the sheep is their whole job. And so when a sheep wanders away, the the shepherd searches for it until he finds it. And Jesus says that when he finds it, he rejoices. He he carries it back to the rest of the fold on his shoulders. And when he gets home, he calls all of his friends and his neighbors together to celebrate the fact that he found his sheep. And then in verse 7, Jesus says, Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. You know, every day I wake up, I come into the office, I do my thing, and then I go home at the end of the day. And never once has Rebecca or the kids thrown a party to celebrate me coming home. And that's, that's because that's that's how it should be, right? I should come home. That, that's that's what I do. But on the other hand, if, if somehow I got abducted and, and I was held captive for several days until I somehow managed to escape, then when I got home, we absolutely would celebrate right? because we would have an appreciation for the fact that we avoided a very bad outcome there. And in the same way, the, the implication of this parable is that If you understand what eternal judgment means, then then when a sinner comes to repentance and is saved, there is great rejoicing in heaven. The Lord himself and the angels and all the saints who are already there rejoice and celebrate over the salvation of a single individual. Then in the second parable, Jesus refers to a woman who has ten silver coins and then loses one. Now, again, at first glance, we may think that this is no big deal, but in the ancient world, people did not have money to burn. And so when this woman loses one of her coins and and realizes it, she searches for it everywhere. And when she finds it, she calls up all her friends to tell them about it and to celebrate together. And again, in verse 10, Jesus says, Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so in context, Luke is showing us that these tax collectors and sinners are coming to repentance through Jesus' ministry. And he sees that as a cause for great celebration. I want to pause here because I think this is very important for us to see because this dynamic of Jesus' approach to people is one of the main ways that Jesus is misunderstood and misappropriated in our culture today. You see, we have to understand that Jesus deeply loves people, and he calls them to repentance. Okay, Jesus deeply loves people, and he calls them to repentance. It's not either or, it's both. It's both. The world reads about Jesus being around spiritual outcasts, and they say, see, see G- Jesus, he's, he's cool with sin, right? All of you religious folks need to stop hating on people, stop being so judgmental, and just love people. And on the other hand, Pharisees see Jesus being around spiritual outcasts, and they say, these people are sinful. Jesus shouldn't be around them at all, and neither should we. But Jesus defies both of these approaches. He refuses to simply affirm or reject these people. Instead, through his relationship with them, he is helping them to see the better realities of the kingdom of God. And he's helping them to enter the kingdom of God through repentance of sin and faith in him. And church, if we want to be faithful to our mission, if we want to follow Jesus' example, then we must do the same thing. We have to do the same thing. We must be willing to love people right where they are, even as we insist, without compromising, that they must repent of their sin and turn to Jesus for salvation. And it's certainly not always going to be easy. That won't always be received well. Again, the world is going to emphasize love. Religious hypocrites are going to emphasize truth. But Jesus embodies both, and we must also. This isn't even the point of the sermon, but it's directly related, and I think it's something that we desperately need to be reminded of this morning. We must love people, And call them to repentance. Now back to the sermon. You see, as as important as sheep may be to a shepherd, or or a lost coin may be to a woman, people who have been created in the image of God are truly priceless. And so when people who have been lost are found by God's grace, which is what is happening through Jesus' ministry, there is great rejoicing in heaven. This is cause for celebration. The question then is, why is there not great rejoicing on earth as well? And to explain that, Jesus is going to give his third parable, which we'll read about as we pick up again, beginning in verse 11. It says, and he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And so, picking up in verse 11, Jesus moves on to what is probably his most famous parable of all. It's commonly known as the, the parable of the prodigal son. And in this parable, there is a man who has two sons. And one day, the younger son approaches him and tells him to, to divide the property and give him the share. That is coming to him. Now we have to appreciate what this means. Right? As a son, this young man is certainly entitled to an inheritance, but not until the father dies. Right? That's how inheritance work, right? And so by demanding his portion of the inheritance now, this son is basically saying that the father is dead to him, or, or even that he wishes that the father was dead. And so we can probably assume that there's been some ongoing conflict, uh, some disagreement. and now in a, in a most tacky way, the younger son dishonors his father and demands his share of the inheritance now. Now, by all rights, according to the Old Testament law, this father could have this son publicly beaten or even killed for a stunt like this. Right? In my family, you would have just found yourself out of the will, right but, but Instead, the father concedes, and he divides his property between the two sons. Then presumably, the younger son sells his portion of land, and he takes all of the money to a faraway land. And At the end of verse 13, we see that in a matter of time, he squandered his entire inheritance on reckless living. Which is a phrase that can have immoral connotations, but really, it essentially means that he just lived like there was no tomorrow. And he spent all of his money living through the moment. And so you may think of professional athlete who make hundreds of millions of dollars only to end up with nothing in the long run. Same kind of, of thing. And so for a time, he was on top of the world. But now the world is about to be on top of him. In verse 14, we see that after the son had spent everything he had, a severe famine hit the land. And, and there was no more food. And since the son has no more money, he has to take a job feeding pigs. Now, you may recall it from a Jewish perspective. Pigs are unclean animals. And so this would be a shameful job for him to take from a Jewish perspective. And that points to the fact that the son is very desperate. He must not have any other options. And actually actually, he's really desperate because in verse 16 we see that it gets to the point where he longs to be fed with the food that the pigs get to eat. Right? The pigs have it better than he does. And Jesus says that nobody gave him anything. He's not finding any sympathy with the locals. And so this situation represents the lowest point you could possibly sink to. Right? This, is, this is rock bottom. The, the sun is broke. He's all alone and he is humiliated. He's gone from big shot to loser just like that. Well, in the midst of this situation in verse 17, that the son finally comes to his senses. He realizes that his father is a good man and that he treats his servants well. They have more than enough to eat. And so instead of staying here working with pigs and starving, the son comes up with a plan. He decides that he'll return home and beg his father to take him on as a servant. He knows at this point that there's no way he's going to be welcomed back into the family, but perhaps his father will hire him as an employee. And so the son comes up with what he's going to say, and he sets out on his journey back home. However, in verse 20, while he is still a long way off, the father sees him approaching and when he sees him, the father takes off running towards him. And he does that not so he can scold him, not so that he can say, I told you so, but so that he can give him a bear hug and kiss him out of joy that he has come back. The, the word embrace doesn't quite capture the intensity of, of the emotion in the moment. And so the son starts going through his spiel about how he sinned against God and against his father, and he's no longer worthy to be his son, but then the father interrupts him. He is having none of it. So he calls to his servants, and he has them bring the best robe and a ring and shoes and to put them on him so that he can be dressed properly as a son of the family. And not only that, but he calls for the fattened calf to be killed and prepared because they are about to celebrate the fact that the son has returned safely. Fast forward to verse 25. The story shifts to the older brother who's out working in the field. And at one point, uh, he hears music playing and people dancing. And perhaps he can smell the barbecue cooking. And so he asks one of the servants what all the fuss is about. The servant tells him that that his brother has returned and that the father has received him and has killed the fattened calf and is preparing to celebrate the fact that he has come back safe and sound. But the idea that the younger brother would be received back into the family, much less celebrated, is is offensive uh, to the older brother. And he becomes very angry and refuses to go into the party. And once again, the father comes out to to engage one of his sons. And he pleads with the older son to come in and join the festivities. But the older brother is having none of it. And he says to the father, look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. And I think here is where we see the rub, where the rub is. And that's that this, this older brother has done his duty faithfully over these many years in the truest sense of that word. He doesn't speak here as a son. He speaks like an employee. He says, I've served you. And what this reveals, I think, is that the older brother is angry, not because he loves his father and, and wants to protect his honor, but because He has followed the rules and now feels entitled to special treatment because of it. In response, the father again pleads with him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But it was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. He emphasizes that by their relationship, the older son has everything he could possibly ask for. Everything that that belongs to him is his. And he clarifies that we aren't celebrating what the younger brother did, we're celebrating the fact that he has come back. And so it's not hard for us to see the reality that the parable is pointing to. Right? The father represents God, the younger brother represents the tax collectors and the sinners, and the older brother represents the Pharisees. Right? And as God's grace and favor is being extended to those who have lived in outright sin through Jesus, the Pharisees... Are offended. All right, just as the older brother sees himself as better than the younger brother and expects the father to treat him better, so the, the, the father's uh, now the father's love and attention towards the younger brother irks him as being wrong. It's wrong for this to happen. And in the same way as the, the Pharisees and scribes see themselves as better than the tax collectors and sinners. We've seen not only have they dedicated themselves to to trying to follow the law, but they've even come up with extra laws that they can follow as well. And so it's offensive to them to think that overtly sinful people could receive God's love and blessing in the same way as them. That's why they are not rejoicing in the repentance of these people. And again, in this they reveal that they don't truly love God, right? They jump through all of these hoops that they jump through because of what they think is in it for them. They think that they can earn salvation. And so when they find out that what's in it for them is no different than what's in it for the worst sinner who comes to repentance, they are outraged because they feel like they deserve better. Their relationship with God is is not based on love and grace. It's it's based on on the sense that they are worthy of his love based on their own works. Now, as usual, you'll notice that Jesus doesn't finish the story. And so we don't know what happens with the older brother. Does he eventually come around and celebrate his younger brother's homecoming, or does he continue to throw his own pity party? And as always, the story is left unfinished because the point of the parable is not about the, the fictitious older brother. The point is the Pharisees and their unwillingness to celebrate what God is doing among them through Jesus. The real question is whether or not the Pharisees will recognize themselves in the mirror of the parable and wake up to the glorious reality of what God is doing among them. And So in our passage this morning, Jesus shows us through three parables, God's heart to seek and save the lost. And one thing, among others, that we see here is that you can be lost in a faraway country or you can be lost right at home. You can be separated from God through gross immorality and you can be separated from God through a false sense of self-righteousness. The father goes out to meet the younger son who has squandered his inheritance and he also goes out to meet the older son who feels entitled to privileges because of all the things that he's done. Both of these sons, in their own way, have misunderstood the nature of what it means to be a child of the Father. And both of them need to be restored through the Father's love. As we consider the application of of these parables to our lives today, I expect that most all of us can see ourselves, if we're willing to be honest, in one of the two sons. Perhaps, like the younger son, you know that you're a sinner. Perhaps you are already aware of the fact that you've rejected God's authority over your life and, and pursued all kinds of, of rebellion and sin, and, and maybe you've even wrecked your life in the process. Maybe you've come here this morning because you just really have come to the end of your rope, and you're not sure what else to do, and I don't have to convince you of your need of salvation because you already know that God judges sin. What I want you to know this morning is that the the God who will certainly judge sin also runs to restore those who are willing to repent and turn to him. This morning, if you desire forgiveness and new life, it is yours for the taking, and nobody will be more happy about that than God. There will be rejoicing in heaven. We have the promise that if we come to God through faith in Jesus, we will be received as his own children. On the other hand, perhaps like the older brother, maybe some of us are convinced that we've got our stuff together. All right, we've been in church our whole lives. We've managed to avoid all the headline newsworthy sins that would draw bad attention. We feel pretty good about ourselves. Right, we might say that we love the Lord... But the reality of our heart is that we feel like he owes us because we've done our part. We've kept uh, the laws and the commandments. In some ways, a sense of self-righteousness is even more dangerous than open rebellion because we compare ourselves to people who aren't as good as us. We lose our sense of need for a savior. But however much better we might be than the person next to us, the Bible is clear that there is no such thing As a truly righteous person, all of us have sinned against God, and when we try to use our obedience as leverage against God, it makes it all the worse. Perhaps some of us need to reconsider how we're approaching God and recognize that we are just as much in need of God's grace as anyone else. The good news is that the Father offers salvation to the self-righteous just as much as to the openly sinful. And all we need to do is turn to him. Friends, when people are lost, God goes after them. He sent Jesus to live, die, and rise again to pay the penalty for our sin. He has commissioned the church to take the message of the gospel and make disciples of Jesus around the world. So this morning, may we all find forgiveness from our merciful Heavenly Father. And may we share the message of salvation so that others can find it as well. Let's pray together.